Hello and welcome to episode 222 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today on the podcast, we welcome Sorab Habibiun from Edsel, Kids for Cash, Obits, and Savak. So Rob also filmed a ton of shows back in the day in the D.C. area, and his YouTube channel is full of amazing performances from a time when many shows weren't even filmed. So we tap into his time in New York City, D.C., the bands he was in, and really touch on Edsel, which, uh, if you haven't listened to, is an amazing, amazing band that I got into. They have a split on Jade Tree and also some releases. Really great band to check out. Um, and also talk about his musical life that he's continuing to this day. So really really cool conversation um thank you to the patreon supporters if you want to support patreon.com slash washed up emo also double elvis thank you double elvis network um, for being a partner with washed up emo learn about their award-winning podcast at doubleelvis.com. this is episode 222 of the washed up emo podcast with sorab habibu from etzel So I am in um, a practice space, so if you hear um, uh, <laughs> uh, some metal drummers in the background, <laughs> that's why. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that part of a practice space? Like, there has to be that playing, or I don't even know if they like, they allow it to, let, I think there's like a law, right? You have to have a metal band playing. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there has to be at least one metal drummer nearby. <laughs> There is a double we're, we're place. At, there's a double bass and, and blast beats somewhere near you. Honestly, there's some days where there are three, and it's just so crazy. <laughs> it uh, is. But, it, it is like but, you're at a festival then. Yeah, that's that's a real positive spin on it. I like that. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you for doing this. So before we start. Um, Ian Mackay told me to do this um, every time. So I ask everybody state your name, the date and where you are. You know, he asked me to do the same thing. <laughs> really? Were you? Was it? Was it? What? What was it for? It was for the Fugazi, um, the, the second edition of the, the the Glenn Friedman book. Yes. And so I interviewed Glenn and Ian, and he was like, "You're going to do like a slate thing, right?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You know, like everybody says their name and the date and everything." I was like, "Oh yeah, sure." <laughs> uh, so, right. So uh, I'm so Rob Hebbyun. And uh, wait, do you want me to say the date as well, or what? Yeah, let's do the whole the whole thing. What, all right, all right. Say the whole thing again. Come on, come on. Ian <laughs> taught you. I'm just kidding. I know, I know, I know. But I've, I've failed so many of his excellent lessons. Uh, <laughs> so this is so Rob Hebbyun, and uh, it is uh, August 11th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. I am in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I was in the band Edsel, and then after that, I was in a band called Obits, and now I play in a band called Savak. I love that. What is the the origin of that last name? It's beautiful. Uh, it's it's Iranian. My dad's Iranian. Well, he's a naturalized American citizen, but um, it's an Iranian name. And my uncle, my dad's older brother, was the first one to come to this country. And so when he went through Ellis Island and they decided how they were going to spell it in English, it definitely changes the pronunciation of it, I think, in terms of how it looks. It doesn't really doesn't kind of sound out correctly. So, you know, I think it, in a good way, I've learned to be forgiving about how how it's said, because really, how would anybody know? I was born in New York. I split my time between here in New York and in Iran, because at the time, uh, my dad 
was um, he was the vice dean at a university in southern Iran, and my mom was doing field research for her PhD here in New York, and the research would take her to Iran. So we'd sort of go back and forth every school year. So I'd be in New York for one year and Iran for one year. And then um, in 1979, there was the revolution, at which point it was uh, we had the opportunity to leave, and we took advantage of that because it was getting pretty hectic. And uh, we moved to the D.C. area. So that, that my 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 initial sort of landing in the DC area was in 79, 80, um, when I was, I guess, entering the fifth grade. <laughs> wow. So you would go back and forth. So what was that like one year in New York, one year in Iran before the revolution? Was it pretty, I mean, was, was it similar to you as a kid, even though you're in two different places? I really truly love them both. I mean, they're, they're completely different. I mean, where we lived in Iran was in the Southwest and it was really arid. Um, it would be like living in like Tucson or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was a college town. Um, it's right across the narrowest part of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba from Iraq. So there were certain places in town where you'd go. And actually most of the people working there were Iraqi because it was closer for them to take a canoe across the Gulf than it was for people in other parts of town to get there to to work. So as a kid, I I loved learning Iraqi slang. And um, then I would come back here to New York and my my mom um, was up at Columbia up in, you know, 122nd Street. So that area in the 1970s was a pretty vibrant, exciting place. And so it was just a, a great contrast to have one year here and one year there. And um, yeah, I, I wouldn't swap it for anything. It was a really amazing way to grow up. I remember talking to kids when I moved to New York in 2000 after going to school and I'd been in a very, grew up in small towns and going there and talking to the New York City kids and what they experienced just being in the city um, and things that they were exposed to. And then for you to have that other be able to be traveling like that at such an early age, it probably opened you up to a lot of different things. I was made aware of it at the time only because in each place, people would ask me about the other place. So <laughs> in Iran, people would, seriously, I swear, people in Iran would be like, oh, what do you like? Do you like it better in New York or here in Abadan? And in New York, people were like, oh, do you like it better in New York? You know, and, and so I, I would not have ever thought to qualify as one being better than the other. They were just different experiences. Yeah. Um, and but but I, I was made to realize like what that, that's how people view things ordinarily is in these very sort of black and white, you know, one thing is better than the other thing. And actually, I was reminded of it once again when my son was really young and we'd go to the zoo and you'd come back and be like, oh, what's your favorite animal? And I just thought, like, what a weird way to look at the world. <laughs> you know, like like everything has to be a favorite or what thing has to be better. Like it's as if there's like a hierarchy for all of the information out there in the world that we have to always adhere to and um so yeah so that that experience of of being the other in each place i think did inform my outlook and i think made me in a very positive way receptive to punk rock and uh and you know sort of sort of being being um sympathetic to outsiders and sort of people living on the margins and uh not not traveling the well-trodden kind of um American paths of, of what it means to, to, uh, to make your way in the world. You've never listened to an episode, but you went right where I wanted to go. So thank you very much. <laughs> That's exactly what I meant. Like you were, you were exposed yourself to these different things that 
I, like I said, it probably it probably opened up that punk rock door. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I first heard uh, hardcore when I was in the seventh grade, um, I immediately it, it erased every other kind of music I had heard <laughs> up until that point, just because I, so I heard something that just actually made complete sense to me in the sense that it was so clearly something that I had not yet heard. And for a reason that seemed very exciting to me, you know, like this, this was something that, that was made by and for um, sort of a peripheral group of people. And I think I very much related to what that might be or what that might mean. It's funny because I was not really immediately aware that these great bands were literally 15 miles away from me. Um, so I would, you know, it was like more standard stuff like dead Kennedys, circle jerks, uh, spent some quality time with the, uh, meat men record. Um, and, uh, but you know, it was, it was that kind of, a lot, a lot of California hardcore, um, and things, you know, like marquee name things like butthole surfers, bad brains. Um, but also I, I just, you know, in the seventh grade, I just didn't know much about the history of music. So I didn't really know that, say, the Buzzcocks existed at a time that was different than the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> you know, it was all just, uh, it was all new to me. Uh, so, which was exciting. And um, yeah, and so all the stuff that was around me, like all the journey in Kansas and all that kind of garbage, like I was so grateful to not have her a reason to have to listen to that music because it you know it just it seemed really it didn't that music didn't speak to me at all anyway and so you hear something that was just like completely you know seemingly like being beamed in from some other part of the world uh was great i loved it did you have other friends that you found that were into the same kind of stuff um it was mostly through friends older siblings like i remember um let's see when i was 15 i was uh in this band called kids for cash it was like my high school hardcore band and our bass player danny his older brother phil was super into music and so you know he'd hear us practice and i think danny knew all these records anyway because his brother was listening to them but like he'd be like oh you gotta check out the jam or you gotta you know and so it would be those you know older siblings who would say you know or get older siblings who would give us rides so we could go see the circle jerks and coc you know because it 15 i didn't have a driver's license i couldn't get anywhere um so yeah i think it was just a, a very small group of us at my high school that were sort of learning about stuff and turning each other on to new things because you know once you find out about it you realize there's this like treasure trove of stuff out there that you just have to like follow the you know the breadcrumb trail to um and so it was like discovering mrr and or actually it was, I think, discovering like Smash Records in Georgetown. And then you go there and they have zines and you start reading zines and zines have all this information. And, you know, I started at a pretty young age. I started corresponding with people who, you know, I'd, I'd read things that they had posted in their scene reports and maximum rock and roll. So, you know, I had pen pals in Poland and I had pen pals in uh, Norman, Oklahoma and all these kind of, you know, equally far flung places to me because I'd never been to uh, Poland and I'd never been to Norman, Oklahoma. So um, yeah, it was just, it was just a great way or like, you know, writing letters. Like I remember Mark, who's in the justice league, he and I would write letters. So he'd write me about everything that was happening kind of in the, the Los Angeles punk area. 
Um, and then you know, I'll write them back like, oh, Marginal Man has a new record coming out. And, you know, I mean, it seems really so antiquated wow. now when you can find it in 15 seconds on the web or whatever. But, but you know, at the time it was like, and I could write Mark a letter and tell him about a new Marginal Man record. And by the time he got the letter, you know, it would still be a couple months before it came out or whatever. So it was, uh, my imagination was always multitasking. So I'd be mowing the lawn and thinking about, you know, whether I could go see the Embrace show or something, you know. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, I, I, the thing that I really liked about the correspondence was that a lot of times people would include flyers or stickers and things in their letters. So, like, I remember Chris from Verbal Assault and I were pen pals. And so he'd send me all these flyers from Verbal Assault shows in Providence. And so I'd see, like, you know, flyers for Lupo's Hotel and all these places that – Again, like just stuff that I was unfamiliar with, or there was a this band from Australia called Death Sentence, and that guy would send me these incredible flyers from Australia, or writing the guy from BGK, and he would send me these Dutch flyers, and you know, it's just like every band that I would see on that flyer, I'd be like, all right, let me track down and see if they have a seven inch out, or you know, it was all really exciting new information for me, and I I just totally ate it up. That's amazing. So like, so this was, what years was this when you really started to, you know, do these pen pals things? Like, did you feel like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this more. I'm going to get further into it. Cause you know, people do something for a minute and then, and then pop out or I'm going to like, what, 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 what stuck about it for you? Well, I guess for me, it mainly was 85 through 87. Like the last couple of years I was in high school and that was the same time that I was videotaping a lot of the shows and I mean, truthfully, I, I didn't really think about it very much. It just kind of was I, – if I had to look back and, and try to analyze it, I'd say that um, it was probably a really great way of kind of keeping my mind active and interested and engaged with stuff that seemed exciting to me as opposed to school, which I did fine in school, but it wasn't like a thrilling place to be or anything. Um, so – it provided a place for my imagination to kind of run amok, you know, so. I love that. And so what, what other, so the, the shows like did, as that evolved as, as um, before you like started taping or maybe this was the same time, was it, all right, I'm going to go see this show. I'm going to go do this. Um, were you doing anything else? Were you writing for zines? I mean, you, and you were in bands this, this whole time or certain pieces of it. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was in a, like, we had a, a, our local, you know, high school band was called Kids for Cash. And um, that was actually a really, you know, accidental, great learning experience uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one side of things, you know, like anything, we had no idea w what we were doing. And so we had to figure everything out. And so, for example, we didn't know, like, by this point, we were going into D.C. to see shows at D.C. Space, at 930 Club, and Hung Tree Pub, and uh, Worst Radio Hall, and all these places. And um, we we wanted to play those places. We just had no idea how to get those shows. I mean, we didn't know who you call, how do you ask. Like, none of this stuff was familiar to us. So we basically started putting on our own shows at the local community center. That was kind of our workaround was to just do that. And um, so instead of trying to play with Beefeater or Marginal Man or Scream somewhere where we'd see them otherwise, we would ask them to come and play at our community center. And they did. And and I, I think 
And the biggest coup was when Seven Seconds played. That was that was amazing. But uh, wow. I think that for a lot of people, um, you know, I, I don't know how you know how familiar some people are, are with the DC hardcore thing, but being in that environment was such a gift in a lot of ways. But for example, like you could just call up Discord House and say hey could i speak with tomas you know and and you 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 know get put on hold and tomas picks up the phone and you're like hey does beef eater want to come play our community center next saturday <laughs> you know and it just all, all, like we had access to this great these great local bands who were totally open to playing with some high school band out in the suburbs and that's a pretty amazing thing you know uh and i i didn't fully appreciate it at the time because it, it it's all that we knew um but uh later on i realized what a what a generous environment that was to sort of become familiar with music you know kind of the the social engagement of music that's beautiful yeah yeah you're like hey you want to play a show and they would they're like yeah i think we're free on saturday <laughs> I mean, I just thought that's how it worked. I just didn't know, you know, I didn't, because also nobody, there was, nobody had booking agents or, you know what I mean? Like you want to play there, you just figure out who the person is in that city to call to get a show, you know? It's like, I don't know. It it, it was pretty primitive now that I think about it, but it worked, you know? Absolutely. Uh, so, but yeah, but my, uh, my friends had this, a zine called Yet Another Unslanted Opinion. And, um, so <laughs> sorry, that your was... names of these things are fucking brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so yeah, so Brian and Sean and some other people in the neighborhood were doing the zine. And it was, I don't know how many issues they had, but it was actually a pretty good, good zine. Um, and so that was a nice way of learning things. But here's one thing that, um, was for me a very lucky scenario, which is that the singer in Kids for Cash, his parents were very religious and essentially forbade him from any involvement in punk, in punk rock. And so he ordered a lot of records, but they all got shipped to my house. And uh, so the deal was that I could listen to all the records that he ordered. I could tape whatever I wanted to. And at the time, there was this place in, in San Francisco called Systematic Mail Order. And if you ordered more than X amount of records, they'd send you free stuff. So Frank would order, say, 50 bucks for the records. He'd have them all show up at my house. And whatever the freebie was, I got to keep. So, you know, I got to hear, like, the Let the Meat Jelly Beans compilation and, you know, uh, you know whatever. All, all kinds of great, like, mid-'80s hardcore stuff that Frank would order. And anything that they threw in was mine. So it was a total, total bonus for me. Uh, that so that rules. was a great way of hearing tons of music that otherwise I may not have heard, you know, just cause Frank was just devouring, you know, zines and ordering stuff online or online <laughs> ordering stuff through the mail. Yeah. I, I went in college. I, I met some people that they, they had to do similar things. Their parents wouldn't allow records in the house. Um, cause yeah. they were so, you know, religious, but yeah, that's such a good story that you got the, you got the goods. I mean, you could have been like, yeah, no, that, that record wasn't in there. I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I know. No. I'm kidding. So, and then yeah. you were, you were, you were recording these shows and I'm, I was interested cause I love the archiving and things that, you know, it was before it became easy, um, like you said, you bring in a camera, but I love that it was beta because that was like, that was like, people thought beta was going to take off, not VHS. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, there was, there was, that was, I, all the credit goes to my mom for that. I had no clue as to any of that stuff. She basically, she, my, my great grandmother died. It left some tiny pittance of cash. And, uh, my mom was like, Oh, you know, I was thinking about, you know, getting you something with it, you know, and she bought the video camera. I really have no, it's not that I had any sort of like predilection for doing video or anything like that, but she was like, Oh, I thought you, you and your friends would enjoy it. And, uh, I was like, Oh, great. You know, thanks. And, and then she said, well, you know, you guys are playing that show at the community center. Wouldn't it be fun to videotape your friends and you would have, you know, you'd have it to watch. So really this is all her idea. <laughs> so, so she, she deserves the credit for buying the camera and for suggesting that we videotape the bands. I love your mom. I mean, <laughs> yeah, man. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you, uh, I, what was it so you would set it up like i mean did you feel um like did it feel weird setting it up because again it, it wasn't like yes i remember seeing cameras but maybe not 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 when you were i was I'm not i'm not going to shows then yet i was still watching gi joe and stuff but what what when you set that <laughs> up was there was it just part of it and it got easier and easier as you did it well so the ones at our local community center it was just you know everybody there were people that we knew or friends of friends or so that was not a big deal at all it was um i don't know if anybody i mean if anything i think it was probably amusing to people because it was like people you're going to high school with and they'd you know make you know whatever they'd ham it up for the camera sometimes so there's some pretty funny ones where like you cut i i would cut away from the band and then somebody would just like make a goofy face the camera or whatever uh i mean total high school style um but it was going to the other shows in dc that where it felt a little a little weirder just because um shows at that time were uh definitely a little could be rough around the edges or could be in parts of town they were a little sketchy and so you know toting this thing around and it was like it came in its own little like attache case so it looked like something important uh and so going to some of these places i definitely felt a little self-conscious um but I got used to it, you know, and I would just, there was no, I didn't have a tripod or anything. It's all on my shoulder. And, um, so some of the videos, like there's a marginal man one where I kind of forgot I was videotaping. And so it gets pretty jumpy, you know, it's definitely, a, it's definitely, uh, a, a little like running through the woods, <laughs> you know, I love that. Uh, but whatever, you know, I mean, I also didn't at the time I, I was just shooting this stuff and I wasn't really thinking much about it, let alone that there would be an Internet in 25 years or whatever and, and that I would be posting these videos there. So it all was, uh, yeah, at the time it was just sort of it existed just to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm glad now that I did it, but I, I didn't really think much of it at the time. Right. I just, you just reminded me, I did videotaping for the, my high school and I was videotaping the championship game for soccer. And I, it was the women's soccer team and I was, I forgot I was videotaping and they scored in like extra time and the cameras recording the grass. Um, and they got so mad and I was like, I'm sorry, I got excited. I don't know what to tell you guys. <laughs> I forgot. So, um, how long were they sitting in a, in a box? When did you say like, this would be kind of cool to put them online? So they were, they were in a box for years, just at my parents' house. And then, um, I think the first person to ask me about them 
I can't remember. It was either Mark Anderson or I'm trying to think if it was he or um, James Schneider who did that punk, the Capitol movie mm-hmm. and did that. He, um, the blue is, I think it's blue is beautiful. The makeup movie. Um, he's made a bunch of really great films, but it was either, either he or Mark Anderson from positive force. One of the other asked me if I had the videotapes. I said, I did. They were at my parents' house. And, um, then they coordinated with my mom to pick up the box and essentially transferred whatever they wanted to at the time for the stuff that they were working on. But it wasn't until Scott Crawford and Jim Sile were working on salad days when Scott actually suggested, you know, he said, um, he was in touch with David Grohl's production company and he said, you know, they asked me about the Mission Impossible footage. And he said, why don't you ask them if they can just digitize all the stuff? And uh, so I just figured, why not? And so I sent an email. I said, you know, I've got all these tapes. Dave's on a bunch of them. Would you be willing to digitize them for me? And they wrote right back, said, here's our FedEx number. Send them to us with a hard drive and we'll do it. And sure enough, they digitized everything, sent them all back with a hard drive with the transfers. I mean, it was pretty amazing. So Wow. Uh, yeah, so it was it was through their generosity that uh, the stuff all, all got digitized, and then, you know, pandemic being what it was, uh, <laughs> or, or what it is, but what it was at, in its peak, particularly, um, I was at home and uh, just decided to start going through them and editing them. And by editing, I just mean like cutting off the front and the end, so you just got the full set. I didn't go through and do any like real editing. It was more just so you'd get the the set in its entirety and just started posting them on um first I think I started on doing it on Vimeo, but then I decided to move it over to YouTube just for I figured more people just actively engage with YouTube. So what was the what was some of the early reaction? Like friends reaching uh, out or yeah, I mean, it was funny. It's a combination of things. Like sometimes it would be uh, friends or people who were at the shows who were excited to see them, you know, themselves at age 15 or whatever. Uh, and then sometimes, a couple of times bands would reach out or sometimes um, somebody in a band and ask, you know, hey, you know, I was the drummer and GI at this point. Is it possible to get a copy of the show? And, you know, which, of course, I'm happy to oblige all that stuff. Um, and, yeah, it was all pretty positive. And, and the other reason I actually wanted to put it on YouTube was that somehow over the years, some of the stuff got bootlegged. I don't, I don't really know how. And so really kind of crummy iterations of it are on YouTube with a lot of views. And also some of them are monetized and that really, really bothered me. So I thought at the very least I should put up the original versions and no ads. I just, you know, I was like, this is not a money thing. So the fact that people were trying to score some cash off of, off of ads of stuff that I shot when I was 15 really kind of bummed me out. So I was like, all right, I'll just put this stuff up and hopefully people will find it. And, uh, you know, it'll counter a little bit of that. For a while, I was actually writing some because there are all these sites that just sort of aggregate videos. It's like, you know, some dude in a basement and like any punk video he'll put up or whatever. And, uh, and they just they put ads on them all, and they so they're they're making money. And I would write and just say, please, you know, could you take this down? And uh, then I realized it was a total waste of time. And you know, 
it, it, it started to feel really petty for me too. I was like, you know what, whatever, they're going to do what they're going to do. So yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of those where um, there's whole Instagram accounts just ripping YouTube videos and not referencing who the, who got the video or like where it's from. And YouTube has, you know, some safeguards in place, but Instagram and Facebook are worse. Twitter's worse. So it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny for me more than I like, I didn't care so much about the attribution. I just, there were worse quality for one, but also the fact that they're making money off of them, that there was something about that that just inherently really bothered me. I was like, you know, the bands aren't making any money off of this. It's some, (laughs) some dude in a basement somewhere, you know? It's an absolute basement. You're totally true that, that, that is not their own apartment. If they're doing that, I'm I'm just kidding. We're just... (laughs) Um, I want to get to Edsel, um, but I also thought we are in the um, Washed Up Emo podcast, and I got Ian to talk about it, and Gee and everybody else, But and you being in D.C., and especially that time. Do you remember hearing the word for the first time, the word emo? I don't remember. Um, no. I, I mean, I remember at a certain point it was part of the vocabulary, but in a way that I, th- I remember it being different than how it is now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Just thinking about when you heard it in like the eighties or, or nineties. Yeah. It seemed, first of all, it seemed less charged with a very um, specific thing that it sort of became like it, it was more sort of a, a simple catch all to refer to something as kind of having a certain amount of, um, you know, uh, sermon drang or, you know, like just a certain amount of sort of engagement or like, like a certain amount of, of, I'm trying to avoid using the word emotional, by the way. <laughs> uh, you should, that, that is the most uh, said thing on the podcast. You know, so don't worry. No, no, no. It's, 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 uh, it's, I, I mean, I remember just referring to a band like, yeah, they're pretty emo, but in a way that was sort of meant, uh, I don't know. Like they were kind of gave it their all, or they sort of, you know, they, they, they. It didn't. It wasn't like uh, what I think of it now. Yeah, in general, I think you know the sort of the. I don't think it's necessarily a modern mentality. I think it's just, you know, there are people out there who want to monetize whatever they can. I think it's just a way of seeing the world as. You know, everything is an opportunity to to gain something uh, for yourself. And um, yeah, it's just a bummer when it comes to stuff like music, particularly when it's like fringe or underground or, you know, it's just like it just seems like such a grim way to view it. It just sort of like drags it through the dirt in this way. Um, I found out about Edsel um, because of Jade Tree. I was a huge Jade Tree fan, and I was, I think, around that time, um, about to get into college, um, and toward the end of my high school, and then sort of looked back, and then I met Mike and his brother, and John told me about you know his time with Edsel, so I sort of um, got into that. I'd, I'd love to hear you know the beginnings of that band and and how you know you sort of um, came came to be because I think it's it's beautiful music oh thank you um that's very generous well well, actually i I met nick the original drummer through videotaping shows (laughs) uh it was i was at um i was videotaping the gi and lemonheads show at hungary pub and he and his friend jeff 
just came up to me. I'm like, hey, you know, we saw you videotaping the show. What's the deal? What are you doing? So we just kind of started talking and hit it off. And then um, I would just start seeing those guys at shows because they were from the Bethesda, Maryland side of D.C. And I was from the Burke, Virginia side. So sort of the shows were where we saw each other. And then fast forward a little bit. And um, Nick was in this thing called At Wit's End. And um, we ended up with Jim, who was in that band Velocity Girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh Pete, who was in GI and uh, Dove and stuff, he, uh, we were all became housemates. And this was right around when Edsel started in the late 80s, like 87, 88, I guess it was 88, maybe. Um, and we, we were a three piece with this guy, Steve Ward on bass. So Steve, Nick, and me. And we were super into Killing Joke, Wire, Buzzcocks, Gang of Four. Um, I mean, we sort of we we'd all been huge enthusiasts for the DC scene, particularly like Happy Go Licky was a band that we really loved. Um, and you know, the a bunch of the guys in the bands who were on Discord worked at um, Yesterday and Today Records out in Rockville, and because Nick was a Bethesda guy, that was a record store he would go to. And so I started going out there with him. And so, you know, Guy would be behind the counter or Michael Hampton or Bert or somebody. And they were a couple of years older than we were. And so they were these great people who would sort of guide us through the, you know, the history of punk, you know. So you'd go in there and, uh, you know, like say Guy would be in the seven inch room. He'd be like, oh, do you have the stiff little finger seven inch? No. Okay. You got to get it. Um, do you have I'm the Fly by Wire? No, you have to get it, you know. And so, they were really instrumental at sort of pointing us, you know, to like, oh, th- like Michael's a huge UK subs fan. He's like, oh, you have to get this UK subs record. And and so when Edsel first started, it was kind of we were f- really just learning about a lot of the British punk and post-punk stuff. Um, and so our early sound is very much influenced by that like, sort of equal parts uh, wire gang of four killing joke as it was by, you know, uh, happy go lucky and rights of spring. Um, and then uh, we slowly evolved. We got uh, Eli who was in girls against boys before girls against boys. He was recording our first record and then he joined the band for a while. Um, and we actually did a super fun tour through Ohio, we did a bunch of shows with Nation of Ulysses, which was really no great. shit. And yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was, um, I think, Nation of Ulysses, Ulysses, and Pitch Blend, and us all did a bunch of shows together. Um, and uh, then Girls Against Boys started, so Eli went to that, and we got another guitar player, this guy Steve, who was friends with Eli, and our sound sort of was evolving at this point to kind of incorporate more kind of a like the my bloody valentine and uh you know kind of a lot more 60s elements as well you know like uh, we were listening to a lot of kinks and creation and things like that um so it was sort of the palette was broadening um and uh yeah so we just i don't know we just i can't remember how many records we made four maybe something like that four. and um yeah it was a fun band it was you know and and i mean 
again, much like when I was in Kids for Cash in high school, I learned so much through the course of that band. Like, and for example, like when we first started and we went and we recorded a tape, I, I had never, I mean, Kids for Cash recorded with Don Ciantara in her ear, but I was the guitar player. I wasn't the singer. So it was easy enough for me to just play guitar and not pay attention to the process at all. But when we went to record the first Edsel demo, uh, we went with Michael Hampton, who is in Faith and One Last Wish and SOA and stuff. Um, and he was a, a friend and we sort of trusted him as knowing his way around the studio because he'd made a bunch of records. And uh, so we first went into Don's and it was the first time I'd ever sang in a studio. And prior to that, I'd only ever sung in the basement practice space. So I had no idea what my voice actually sounded like, uh, you know, because I was just like hollering over the din of the band practicing. It's not like it was a great PA or anything. And um, so we went and we recorded three songs and I started to do the vocals. It was getting later in the night. And I'll never forget, Michael was like, Hey, uh, listen, it's getting pretty late. Why don't we wrap this up for the day? We'll come back tomorrow and start fresh. Why don't you take a rough mix of the songs home and like work on the vocals? So when we come back tomorrow, you can, you know, really have them worked out. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And, and, you know, I mean, to his credit, he was very nice about it, but he was basically saying like, you know, you got to figure out what you're doing here. Cause I had, I literally had no clue what I was doing. Aww. Uh, like, I mean, on one song, I think I even like had like a kind of a fake British accent because you know, I don't know. I don't know what it sounds like, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so I went home and Nick and I sat there and like we're listening to the tape and we're like, trying to find references like, OK, what kind of vocal would work with this song? But it was the first time I'd actually tried to sing over it at a volume that I could hear, because, of course, this predates like I mean, I guess we could recorded stuff on a boombox, which we sort of did. But later, um but I'd never had the experience of like hearing your voice in relation to the music at a volume where you could actually make sense of it. It was just like screaming over the top of it. You know? Right. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, thanks to Michael Hampson, I, I had to learn how to figure out what that meant to actually sing in a band. And so I, I feel like in Edsel, I, I learned to sing. I learned to, to what it meant to like use words to phrase in a certain way and how to, you know, both syllabically what works versus what works on the paper and uh so yeah it was a it was a it was a cool band and in that the people that i was in it with were all like very interested in different things and we all kind of turned each other turned each other on to stuff um which was great i really wouldn't have it any other way i love that and then what was i mean some of the um dealings with labels and it's not it's not talking dirt but i'm sure you learned a ton about that like oh wow there's this big machine we did in fact so okay when we recorded the i think it was we recorded the first demo and i gave it to ian and then you know i said would discord consider putting it out and he was like you know it's not that we wouldn't but i think it would be cool if you guys did something on your own first and I think that was the greatest, I don't know if you call it advice, but it was the best piece of, like, best food for thought that I could have gotten at that time. Because instead of immediately being on, be, having a relationship with a label that does stuff for you, it forced us to figure out, how do you actually put out a record? You know, like, where do you get it pressed? Who, you know, how do you get stuff printed for the covers? You know, all these kinds of things. And I put out uh, the Kids for Cash 7-inch, so I had some familiarity, but, you know, I, 
it was a really great learning experience. And, you know, at the time, because in DC, there was no, I mean, there was college radio, but it was, everything was just like on campuses. So there was no, um, College radio, as it existed in the 90s, didn't really exist in D.C., and there was no label infrastructure the way there was in New York or L.A. or wherever. And um, so we were completely unfamiliar with the music biz as a biz. <laughs> you know, there, there mm-hmm. was no biz. It was, it was just music in the best possible way. Uh, but I got a job working at Olson's Books and Records, and they carried all the music trade journals. So they would have Billboard and... Um, uh, hits? Was Hits around then? Hit, yeah, probably Hits. I'm trying to think. There was one, OCMJ. Yep. And uh, there's one that I'm totally spacing on the name of, but Brian Long used to work at it. And they basically, they distributed two... Um, to college radio. And so we got a letter from this company saying, we do this thing where we distribute, I don't know, 50 copies or hundred copies to select group of radio stations. So, so they asked if we want to participate and um, we were totally unfamiliar, but we we're like, you know what? We pressed up a thousand singles. A hundred of them could surely go to this thing, whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. it's a hundred fewer sitting in our basement. Um, so uh, we gave them to Brian Long, and they mailed them out. And it was the first time I had any understanding of college radio or what that meant, because you know we had people writing us from KCOU in Columbia, Missouri, saying, "Oh, we really like the Seven Inch. You know, when are you guys coming to Columbia, Missouri?" And it opened up possibilities for us to actually go tour and play places. And um, that was that was a really very very eye opening. Um, and then. We did two records on Grass, and then we uh, – well, so the first record was on Merkin, and that was a Baltimore label um, that Joe Goldsboro, who uh, had been um, in a uh, – what's the band before Lungfish? I'm spacing on their name. Anyway, uh, Reptile House. He was in Reptile House, and he ran this label in Baltimore. And um, so our first record was on that label, and then we had the opportunity to do a couple of records on grass, which is part of Dutch East and, um, you know, which we were super homestead nerds, but at that point, cause, uh, the whaling ultimate had come out and that was such a great compilation that we, that was, that turned us on to all kinds of great music that we hadn't heard before. Um, and, uh, so we did a couple of records with Dutch East and then the guy who had actually had been the, um, the music director at the station in Columbia, Missouri ended up getting hired by Relativity, which is a subsidiary of Sony. Mm-hmm. And so he became an A&R guy there, and he ended up signing us to Relativity, um, which I, at that point, a lot of our friends had sort of, you know, Jawbox was on Atlantic, and Shutter was on wherever they were. <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, and, you know, so, so various bands were going to different labels, and, uh, you know, and so we weren't really sure about if we were going to be a part of that or not, we couldn't like it just DC was such an outlier in terms of its relationship to that world of music that um, felt a, kind of naive about it all, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but because this guy who had been a champion of our band was this AR guy, it's, he seemed like a trustworthy person. And um, so we signed with relativity and actually had an incredible experience because we, um, some of our friends were more cautious about their advances and so essentially made better versions of 
better, better in quotes, more expensive version of records that they had already made, like with the same people in the same studios, et cetera, et cetera. And our take was like, well, we may never have this opportunity again, so let's do something we would not otherwise have access to. So we ended up going to Liverpool and made a record at the studio in Liverpool. We were there for five weeks with Angeli Dutt, who had worked with My Bloody Valentine and uh, you know Oasis and uh, Boo Radleys and um, Andy Wilkinson was her engineer and he had worked for Stereo Lab and Spiritualized. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, for us, it was it was an opportunity to do something that we never, ever would have done otherwise. You know, five weeks at a studio in Liverpool with these really interesting people who had made all these records that we were excited about. So that was cool. I'm really glad we did that. Um, and then that record came out. And I think at that point, Relativity wisely transitioned from indie rock to hip-hop mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so i remember uh the fateful day when we were, were leaving relativity going to the elevators and out of the elevators was coming fat joe and that then literally i think i have a feeling like you know all the bank accounts like ours were being shut down and theirs were opening like it was just like this seamless transition <laughs> you know um, i actually have met some friends that have worked at that label um and so it's funny to hear their stories but yeah it did it sort of had this switch i mean they knew where the money was it definitely was not where edsel was <laughs> You know, I, I would not, I would not begrudge anybody who said to Edsel, like, sorry, this isn't working out. You know, like, like we should have told him up front, sorry, it's probably not going to work out. <laughs> so what happened after that? Did you, did you, did you tour on um, it? Did, was it sent to radio? We did. Actually, um, we, we toured a lot and it, it, uh, it actually, that record did really well on college radio and, um, we at that point we were a pretty active band. Like we we were touring many 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 months of the year, um, and it was, you know, it was at the point where we weren't making tons of money or anything like that. But we were able to actually sustain a band life because what we had done was, and Jeff, our bass player, was the one who was smart enough to configure this but basically we figured out what our advance was we figured out what we wanted to spend on making the record and then how we could keep enough of it to pay ourselves some monthly salary to cover our rent so that we could actually go and tour and things like that um so for i don't know a year or something like that proper we were i don't think any of us had other i mean you know we would temp jobs when we were home from tour but we weren't sort of we didn't have to take a break from jobs we just you know we're on tour. Um, and that was great. That was a really, I, I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Um, you know, every couch spring that made its mark on my lower back, I think, I think, it, you know, it was cool. You know, you just met, met so many people that I, I still am friends with, you know, uh, and that was 1995. So. That's amazing. What, what are some of the ones that you remember like staying in touch with from back then? Um, well, Actually, I remember uh, a guy in England, Duncan Dinsdale, uh, he was trying to get Edsel to come to the UK. And uh, so he's somebody who now we're still Facebook friends. Uh, and um, there are people like uh, uh, Brian from Lower, the band Lowercase. Um, trying to think. Uh, probably 
there was a band Willard in North Carolina. Um, there was sort of a lot of band friends. Like we, oh, of course. I mean, sorry. The one that I should mention, of course, is Silkworm because we toured so much with Silkworm, and um, Tim continues to be a friend to this day. And you know, um, each one of those, like, sort of going on tour, you find these little cornerstones of kind of you know extended friends and family and um yeah many of them are still people that i'm glad to say i'm in touch with in some form or another that's beautiful so what were you doing yeah in in between all that or even after was it like oh i need to go get a job or i need to stay somewhere what what happened when it you know in in 97 or was it kind of off and on doing other projects well it's funny so (laughs) Again, you know, just learning as we went, basically. So at that point, Jeff had moved up to New York. The rest of us were in D.C. And we were able to make that work pretty easily because we'd play brownies with some regularity. And it was easy enough for him to come down to D.C. because his family was there. So that wasn't a big deal. But I ended up moving to Chicago for a year. And I sort of had the mentality that like, oh, well, Jeff's in New York. I can go to Chicago. It's not a big deal. And I think that really actually kind of fractured the, the ge- geographical fracture i think was enough yeah to kind of kill the momentum um so and you know i didn't realize it at the time and in some ways it's probably for the better i mean we all remain friends but i think things for us as a band were probably changing enough or had changed enough that um i don't think we felt like we fit in anywhere comfortably i mean we weren't on a label we weren't in bc we weren't you know we weren't really we didn't have a, a, a foothold anywhere and so um i ended up going my parents at the time had a cabin in the mountains in virginia i ended up going there and making a solo record and then jeff started becoming a studio engineer uh, Steve, our other guitar player, became a DJ, which he still he's actually a very successful DJ. Uh, and um, so we all sort of started doing other stuff. And then after Chicago, I ended up moving to New York as well uh, and just working as a graphic designer. And actually, when I came here, I remember thinking, you know, I don't know how people are in bands in New York City. I didn't really know. <laughs> I didn't know how it worked. I was like, well, if you're not in like Sonic Youth or something, how do you, you know, how do you make this happen? Like, where do you even keep your stuff, you know? Um, And then uh, through a mutual friend, uh, this guy Hiroshi, who's a painter, um, he was friends with Rick Froberg, who's in, you know, Pitchfork and Travel Like Jehu and Hot Snakes. And Hiroshi was like, hey, my friend Rick is having an art show. I think you'd really like his stuff. Um, and so we went to his art show and I met Rick and I really, really loved his artwork. So I bought a painting and through that, we ended up hitting it off and becoming friends. And, um, then hot snakes at the time was having a little bit of a hiatus and he and I would always just hang out and talk about music and stuff. And he was like, Oh, we should get together and, 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 you know, jam. And I literally was like, sure, but where, <laughs> you know? And uh, so he was like, oh, my friend Scott, I think knows some people have a practice space. And um, so it was just meeting through meeting Rick, who knew Scott, who knew had friends who had a practice space, which happens to be actually around the corner from where I am right now. Um, and uh, then we started Obits, and that was maybe 
early 2000s. Yeah. I sort of lose the timeline at that point. That's okay. But there was there, there were several years where I, I did not play music actively. Um, I was just doing graphic design work just because I, I, you know, I would record at home in my bedroom, but I didn't really know. I was like, what do you, how do you do that? I don't, didn't know how to make it work. You know, everything like had a drum machine on it. Cause I didn't like, where do you find a drummer, you know? Uh, um, but um, yeah. So then I was in Obits and we made, I guess, three records and a bunch of singles. Uh, and then that stopped around 2013, 14, something like that. And um, at that point, I had met uh, Michael Jaworski, who had moved to New York from Seattle. And uh, he was friendly with Obits. And then he and I started playing music together. And um, do you know, you know the band Silent Majority? Absolutely. So Ben, the drummer was my son's second grade teacher. Whoa. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's Mr. Ben, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, I, yeah, so I, I remember my wife and I had, uh, it was a parent-teacher uh, conference, like the, the sort of meet, meet the teacher kind of thing. And um, we went and Mr. Ben was like, hey, you know, before we sit down, there's something I need to tell you. And this was like a week into school or something like that. And I was like, Holy crap! What did my son do? Like I was just thinking, like you know, like, my son is—he's a, a really great kid. But I was like, did he do something weird? What happened? You know? And uh, so I was expecting him to say something terrible, you know, like. Uh, and he was like, "Hey, I just want to let you know, you know, uh, I'm an Edsel fan. I have the Edsel jaw box split seven inch." And I was like, "What?" I was like, "Wait, what? You, what?" <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, and I like Obit. So if you see him at a show, I just didn't want it to be weird." I was like, "Weird? That's awesome, <laughs> you know." Uh, so he he and I, Mr. Ben and I, would talk about music a bunch. And so when Savak started, Ben was actually the the original drummer. Wow. How about that? Well, let's, I guess that brings up that's a little point. watched up emo. There you go. Welcome to the podcast. Great job. But that's the thing that I thought when John mentioned you and I, like, again, finding out through Jade Tree, like, you know, I think hardcore kids, like, found this record, which, or found that band. I don't know what happened. I just, I don't know, something in the world, like, it was in these places that we... So that's why I just thought it was really funny. I was like excited to talk to you because I, you saying that the guy from Silent Majority, like that, yeah, there was this whole group of people that loved your records that were like hardcore dudes. That's cool. Honestly, it's amazing. I, I think that I'm guessing it's probably through that split single with Jawbox that a lot of people mm -hmm. got to know us. Um, but uh, but we, I mean, at the time we toured a lot, but we would tour with Jawbox or Shutter to Think or Silkworm, and I mean the Silkworm shows were definitely not hardcore kids um right. it was mostly like college radio kids or whatever um but you know the tours that we did like we did a we did like 10 shows with job box in florida i think um which is a lot of shows in florida but it was something insane like that uh and you know that that crowd in a really good way was a sort of hardcore post-hardcore crowd and you know it was, it was people who were who knew the discord stuff but were also listening to you know, other stuff, whether it was like My Bloody Valentine or, you know, I don't know, you know, Slumberland Records or Team Beat Records or probably Jade Tree Records. You know, you, even by that point, the Jade Tree stuff was starting to get weirder. Hard. Yeah. 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 It wasn't hardcore stuff, but, you know, in the same way. Um, so, yeah, I think that we were lucky and that that allowed for 
people to sort of be more open to our thing, which was definitely not hardcore. Yeah, that's so funny. I'm sure we were at some of the same shows then. I moved. I was moved there in 2000 um, and left in 2020. Um, so Wait, I'm, you, you're no longer in New York. No, I moved to. Uh, oh. I, I moved to San. I moved to LA the day of the pandemic. Um. But yeah, no, I was, yeah, I, I was in New York, you know, other than a few years upstate at a punk label, um, Equal Vision Records, and then I was in LA for oh, one right. year in 07. But other than that, I was in New York City the whole time. Oh, I'm sure we were at the same shows at, you know, probably, you know, brown, not, not brownies, uh, uh, Cake Shop is the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah Cake you Shop know, probably, or Knitting Factory. Um, when, yeah, when it was in, yeah, for sure. um, yeah, so it was, it was, um, it, that's where I, it, when you were talking about, you know, where the hell do you put drums or like that? I remember doing that when I first got there, like being in bands and, um, I, I, I was just, I had the same laugh. I'm like, where the fuck do you practice? Like, I remember going to those ones on 30th street. Do you remember those practice yeah. spaces? Like yep. it was like 20 totally. bucks an hour or whatever it was like. Um, cash only, like it felt like a brothel, like it was weird. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I concur, though not from experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I really, I it was, it was so mysterious to me. I just didn't like, you know. It also coming here, it felt very like, um, you know, like when you went to like Sam Ash or, or you know those places, like it just felt really pro in the cheesiest possible way, oh, and I totally. just thought. I was just like, how are you a normal band here? But, you know, also at the time, I will say I was living in Manhattan. Um, as soon as I moved to Brooklyn, I realized, oh, there are actually practice spaces that are normal monthly places where you, you can leave your stuff and it doesn't cost a million bucks or whatever. Um, but for the first several years I was living in New York, I didn't, I didn't know that. The only thing that I knew were those either expensive ones or the super dilapidated ones down the Lower East Side where I was like, I don't really want it. This isn't fun. You know? No, no. Yeah, we had one that like a, the window was always open and you just couldn't shut it. So we just knew to bring <laughs> coats. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, um, like bring a golden coat. Yes. How did you, again, you were working, like, how did you balance it? I, I just, I just think I, uh, I love talking to people from New York because there's this balance of the energy of the city. The work is a priority. You've got family. And then to be able to add music onto that was, I thought, you know, I don't know. I know it's like for other cities, but I don't think it's anything like there. Yeah. I don't have much. I mean, though, my only comparison is, D.C. or the one year I lived in Chicago and Chicago reminded me more of D.C. in the sense that people lived in houses where the practice space would be in the basement. Um, though now I think there are more established actual like rehearsal places. But um, at the time it was like, you know, all the stuff's in the basement. Uh, and uh, in New York, you know, once I actually once Obit started, um, we we had our practice space we'd like two nights a week we'd get together and just hang out and play music and it was great i mean we, we didn't actually i don't even think we had a name or played a show for a couple of years we just kind of were enjoying playing and writing and kind of figuring out how like what the sound was going to be um and so that was not very taxing in terms of commitment for my family or for work or whatever i could still go do a day job and you know monday and wednesday nights meet those guys um but 
once Obit started putting out records and started to actually tour in any capacity, then that's when I sort of had to more figure out how to make it work. And um, I can't say that I've done the best job of it, but I've figured out a way to at least keep it as family friendly as possible. You know, I mean, I love my wife, I love my son, and I don't want to be an absentee dad. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be like deadbeat rock and roller guy. Uh, and so one of the, in, in Obits, Greg, our bass player also had a kid. So we made an agreement in the band that, you know, no tour would be longer than say 12 days or two weeks tops. And in between tours, you'd have to have at least six to eight weeks before the next one. So that way we could all be home, be with our families, work and try to, you know, make as much money as possible for rent and stuff. Um, and so we kind of juggle it like that. And at the busiest times for Obits and for Savak, we've still only ever played maybe 50 or 60 shows in a year, which, you know, compare that when I was with an Edsel, like Edsel would play, I don't even know, like 150 shows a year. I mean, we, you know, we toured a lot. Um, and so it didn't seem like that big of a deal to, to just be gone for 10 days. Um, and now on, the other thing too is the internet, you know, and FaceTime and all that stuff. So I can actually get on with my family every day and just kind of, you know, say hi and see how they're doing and tell them whatever silly little adventure we had for the day or whatever. You know? Right. And that was the other thing too, was to, to try to make the experience. Um, so it was, I was sharing it with them. It wasn't just like I disappeared for 10 days. So, you know, my son had a map of the world and I would put, you know, wherever we're going to go on a tour, I would put little pins in the map. I was like, Here, here's where I'm going, you know, and we, on the calendar, I'd mark out like, okay, Tuesday, I'll be in Leipzig, Wednesday in Dresden, Thursday in Prague. And each day I would try to find some thing to talk with them about. So it wasn't just the, you know, I'd be like, hey, today we went to, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, an estuary. We saw all these, whatever, you know, something, something. So, so it wasn't just um, a boring, like, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Great. Okay, cool. Talk to you tomorrow. You know, right. I wanted it to feel more interactive because, you know, I mean, when you're thousands of miles away, you want to have some connection, you know, so. Are all the, are all the tapes up? Everything that you've released? <laughs> I mean, the answer is no. Um, but, it's also kind of yes. I mean, the only thing that's left, I have not put up my high school hardcore band. Um, Cause I'm just like, who cares? You know, I, don't, I mean, it, part of me is just thinks that nobody needs to see the world is not any less rich of a place for not having that stuff available. <laughs> uh, and so there's a couple things like that, you know, um, there's a couple shows and there's a couple shows, sadly, that are too dark. And I don't have the video skills to know how to correct that. Um, there are a couple of things that I've put up that were pretty dark and I corrected it as much as I could. And I was like, you know, it's Dag Nasty. I'll put it up. Uh, or Moss Icon. So I was like, I'll put it up, even though the video is not very great. Um, and there's a couple more that similarly just unfortunately are too dark to really put up. Um, and there's one Fugazi show that's, fantastic and it's an early fugazi show it's maybe like their fifth show what but yeah but the problem is is that it's warped 
so the audio and i actually tried to download or rather i did download the audio from the live archive for that show and tried to match it up with the video but again i'm not a pro video editor and so i know there are ways to get it to work i if anybody out there wants to, wants to work on a live Fugazi video, it's a good one, uh, but but it, it requires you know somebody actually um, sitting through and, and, and fixing it, correcting it. I think uh, I think that's a great call out, and uh, we yeah. um, I, I think I think you might hear from someone. <laughs> hey man, a- I, I, honestly, would would love to because it's a great show and it's a it's a really cool document of them. I think it's. You know, it's before Guy was really in the band, so I think he shows up for a couple tunes. Um, and I can't remember; Ian might have long hair at that point still. So, anyway, what are you most excited about right now? It could be life, it could be music. What's sort of been, um, well, being excited? And yeah, and in, in actually less than in a week and a half, um, Savak is going to Europe, and it's the first time we'll have been over since 2019 because the pandemic. So I am really, really excited about that. Um, we're doing 10 shows, um, starting in Berlin, going down to Budapest, and then kind of hooking back up to Linz, Austria, playing a bunch of shows in the Czech Republic, including a couple of smaller cities that I've never been to before. And I'm, I, I love traveling. And so um, to me, and I love playing music. So to me, doing these kinds of tours where you go to places that you wouldn't otherwise have a chance to go and, you know, checking out the local food and whatever the local spirit is and, you know, looking to see just how people live in these places and meet people who are into art and music. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's a treat. So I'm sincerely thrilled about that. I definitely feel like that traveling a lot as a kid made me very comfortable with that sort of um, that activity as a way of having a regular element of your life be something that is not in your control, which I I really, um, I really like that element of both playing music and also touring where you sort of have to cede control to the unknown and kind of accept that whatever happens, you're going to ride with it. Um, because I think too often we try to control every component of our lives or other people's lives, if you're a Republican. And, uh, you know, you go out, you tour, and you just can't control everything. And you have to learn to hang. And I just think that's a – I love it. I, lo- I love the unknown. That was great. Is there anything else you want to mention? We're, we're going to, to uh, Chicago in June to record our next record at Electrical Audio. We're definitely excited about that. Um because we, in general, have made all of our records here in New York. And so this is the first time, it's the first time actually since Edsel that I will have traveled to a different city to make a record. Um, and so I think that's going to be a lot of fun because, you know, that's one of the things about being in a band as you get older is that you have to figure out how to juggle your time a little bit. And in this case, we're able to go for several days to another city and just focus on making the record. And um, I haven't been able to, do, or have not had that opportunity in a long time. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That was, I really appreciate your time. I love one of my greatest joys is hearing about eras that I wasn't a part of because I hate 
authors or writers that weren't there and don't talk to anybody and just sort of pontificate of what it was and hearing your stories or hearing what it was like, you know, for you um, in those eras and especially that you documented them, um, which is, you know, beautiful. Thank God to your mom again, or thank, thank yeah, uh, the heavens yeah, no. that your mom did that. <laughs> yeah, no, I really, uh, I, I can't thank her enough. It really is. It's, it's such a wonderful surprise how much the videotapes um, have generated a lot of enthusiastic response from people um, because it really just as easily never could have happened. Thank you for, for, for asking me. And um, yeah, just be in touch. Cool. And there was no, there was minimal drumming in the background. Like I ba- like maybe heard it like for two seconds of the whole hour. So well, I didn't I, hear a thing. Good. I actually, there's a vocal baffle that we have in here. So I put the phone inside that baffle area, hoping that would help. So I guess it did. So. Yeah, it did. But it still made me laugh throughout the whole thing because it just memories of just hearing just metal bands the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my God.